Hello, welcome back to our podcast, Deviant Little Darlings. I'm Katie. And I'm Olivia. If you love hearing stories about all things taboo, scandalous, and out of this world, you are in the right place. Wait, 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 Katie, what is this? What? (laughs) Did we just get in a time machine that turns Tuesdays into Fridays? Nope. Welcome to our first ever bonus episode. That was my bullhorn. (laughs) Beautiful. Um, We just have so many fun stories we want to share with you guys, or more realistically, share with each other. So we decided to release two episodes this week. Yeah, and we have a few more exciting announcements to make. Last week when I was telling my story about phrenology, I was like, dang, I wish we could show you guys some pictures of what we're describing. Well, then we realized that we are indeed living in the 21st century, and we can share these photos with you. That's right. Check out our Instagram. It's just at DeviantLittleDarlings, where we will post photos to go with our stories each week. And you might just get some of our own original content, like the semi-awkward story takeover I did to share the creepy photos I took while staying (laughs) aboard the Queen Mary, plus a guest appearance from Olivia's dad. Yeah, that was real special. That was special. (laughs) (laughs) Please give us a follow and feel free to DM us with any suggestions for like stories or topics that you'd like us to cover. And you can also send us ideas or your own personal crazy stories to our email. It's just deviantlittledarlings at gmail.com. And we actually already got our first fan email. So thanks, mom. (laughs) We'll probably be framing her email pretty soon. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about that one. Olivia's mom. (laughs) It was actually really cute. All right. So with all that being said, Katie, how are you doing on this beautiful Not Friday? I am doing pretty good. Um, Both of us, just a quick little tangent really fast. Both of us graduated in December, so you'd think I wouldn't be writing any more essays, but my brother is about to finish the end of his freshman year of college, so I've been editing all of his papers, so I feel like I'm just back in it. Oh my gosh, yeah. That sounds super fun right now. Yeah. Um, How are you today? I'm good. I've just been sitting at my new desk. I haven't really had a desk before. Well, I have, but I never used it. But now I have this nice desk set up. I have like the double monitor thing going on. feels very professional. That's fancy. It's fancy, but I'm also not working. So there's kind of like no point to it other than obviously to do this podcast and to watch Netflix on two screens. It's important. This podcast is. is clearly very important. And Netflix takes the cake. Yeah, this podcast is so important that we actually are doing it twice in a week. Woo! Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> okay, so because this bonus episode might be a little bit too bonusy, meaning both of our stories are pretty long, um, I did prepare a question or a quarantine question of the day for you. I like to call it the QQOTD. Uh, but I think I'm going to save it for Friday's episode because we just want to jump right into this one. Yeah. I love it. Do you want to start us off? Sure, I will. All right, let me just get mentally prepared here because it (laughs) is a little bit long. (laughs) I'm ready. I'm super excited. All right. So in the past, I mentioned my obsession with all things true crime and murder. um, And both of my stories so far have definitely been centered around that. But for this very special bonus episode, I wanted to look at deviance and scandalous stories in kind of a different way, Mm. Um, although it'll still be very far from anything cheery. So, (laughs) (laughs) 
Perfect. <laughs> yeah. So this week I will be telling you about the tragic tale of Audrey Munson, America's first supermodel who died in a mental asylum. Oh. Yeah, that is that is a direct quote or direct title, actually, of the All Things Interesting article where I actually first heard about Audrey. And I got the rest of my research from different articles from Vogue, Allure, and other um, pieces written just kind of about her life in general. Wow. Yeah, so just diving right in, um, Audrey Munson was born in 1891 in Rochester, New York, to her mother, Kitty Munson. And I never really heard anything about her father, so I'm just going to skip that one because he never came up. (laughs) Not important. No. Uh, In 1909, when she was just a teenager, Audrey moved to the Big Apple, New York City, um, as her mother dreamt of making Audrey a star. So here, she started working as a chorus girl, dancing in unison with other beautiful women on Broadway. Super exciting. Mm. Yeah, big leagues. Yeah. Well, she was part of a show that Allure called, or kind of claimed that it was perpetuating the ideal image of the classic American girl. So... Very classic kind of standard show. I'm imagining the Rockettes, but I don't really know about that. That's what's in my head, too. (laughs) Right. Well, so you know how so many girls have this dream of being discovered by like a modeling or acting agency while they're just shopping at the mall? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, so Audrey actually lived that dream, and (gasps) she was approached by a photographer named Felix Benedict Herzog while she was spotted in a Fifth Avenue store window. So very exciting, but just a side note, um, I've heard way too many horrible stories of young women getting abducted or harmed by people posing as photographers and approaching them in random places. So if this ever happens to you, Katie or the other listeners, (laughs) please take every step of precaution possible. Never follow a stranger anywhere. Never show up to a photo shoot alone. Always do research before working with somebody. Yeah. You know, be be on your toes yes make sure we fact check anybody that is claiming that they can make you famous right right oh yeah and i feel like especially new york or california there's probably a lot of that going on but for her it turned out to be legit Mm. so back to the story um now would probably be a good time to tell you why audrey was stopped in the store um and why she became the world's first supermodel Yes, please. So I'm sure we've all seen images of wor- of women in the early 19th or sorry, 20th century wearing those like horribly uncomfortable corsets and big modest gowns and everything. So that was pretty much like the standard for most women living up to at the time. Um, and Audrey seemed to rebel against every one of those constraints. So in fact, her body almost perfectly resembled the images of the Greek goddess Venus. <gasps> Yeah, so she was very beautiful. She was soft. She was curvy. She had um, perfectly round belly. She had full boobs. Her her prized feature was actually she had two little dimples on the small of her back. Oh, so that's kind of cute. cute. <laughs> Do you, I remember a couple of years ago those like back dimples were really in randomly. They were and in. I remember people getting like piercings on their back to try to replicate the dimples do you remember that i don't remember that but all i can think of is i'm pretty sure you know in case anyone doesn't know i'm a big one direction fan and they have a song (laughs) called little things where i'm pretty sure the line 
he's talking about how much they like love this girl and it's like the dimples in your back at the bottom of your spine so it's a thing yeah he was probably singing about audrey munson because that was her money shot right there (laughs) so yeah um not only did audrey have this like goddess like beauty to her but she also had a very free spirit and that was perfectly captured in photos and statues because she often posed either nearly or completely nude. Oh, okay. Yeah, I wrote insert gasp here. So, <gasps> how was that? How scandalous. <laughs> <laughs> so, in fact, even her very first photo with Herzog, she was dressed in nothing more than what Allure called some scantily draped fabric. Oh, okay. And all those facts aside, Audrey was a true American woman. So she didn't really get to the level of fame just from her looks. She actually worked extremely hard. Um, She started with lots of jobs and she charged actually a really cheap rate um, for the photographers to be her model. So she was, um, she was photographed really often just because she was talented, but also very affordable. Okay. Um, And it was rumored that she walked around between the studios just asking for work. So your girl knew how to advocate for herself. Yeah, she was out there hitting the pavement. Yeah, putting in the time. And Audrey's peak fame came between 1909 and 1920 as she posed not only for photographers, but also for some of the world's famous sculptors and painters. So she was the muse for so many different artists um, and she modeled mostly for statues of goddesses and other neoclassic images. Um, and all this attention and praise sounds wonderful, but it was actually, Audrey was quoted many times saying that she doesn't really feel like she could live up to the expectation of the beauty portrayed in the Mm. art. She said that the statues were far lovelier, I fear, than I could ever be. So that was a direct quote. I know that part is really sad. sad. Yeah. And I mean... It's sad because I feel like we always talk about nowadays the dangers of social media and Photoshop and having impossible beauty standards set Mm -hmm. by the modeling industry. But even 100 years ago, before there was any of those things, like supermodels didn't even exist yet, no Instagram, she still felt like she wasn't good enough. Like she was the first, the prototype and still... Oh, no. I know. So sad. She was affected, you know, as she like looked at the statues and she just saw the the artist's edits that they made to her body because obviously it wasn't a direct replica. Right. Um, I think it just, yeah, it just goes to show that having those like worshipped idyllic images of women and beauty can be really harmful no matter where you are or who you are. So I just wanted to point that out that even though it sounds all fancy and glamorous, it's still really hard. Yeah, no, good note. I think it's especially like, it's hard to think about, but like in art in general, just like there's misrepresentations of beauty that like, we just are so used to now. Exactly. So in this time, um, she's kind of at peak fame. There were countless works of art commissioned in her image all across New York. And she was given the nickname Miss Manhattan. I always love Ooh. a good nickname. So I had to throw that in there. Right. And she was officially the world's first supermodel. You can actually see her sculptures all over famous hotels and landmarks in New York. And to paint a bit of a picture at the... Panama Pacific International Exposition World Fair, super long. Yeah. Um, there were actually hundreds of statues of Audrey spread across the grounds. So oh. one of the exhibits, yeah, one of the exhibits were like 
I think 1,500 statues and at least 100, probably more, were completely in her image. So when she walked around that, that's kind of where the quote came from, where she said she'll never live up to the beauty. That's kind of surreal. I think that, I don't know if I would be like, like thrilled or kind of freaked out. <laughs> I know, especially since, like, it kind of reminds me of, um, you know, and what not to wear when they would stand oh, in that mirror yep. and they would just see their reflection from all angles. I feel like that's what I would feel like. Just, you just see my like butt from 10 different <laughs> angles at a time. Oh man. <laughs> I actually can exactly picture that. I miss that show. That was a great show. Speaking of TV and film, in 1915, Audrey made the jump from standing very still and posing for artists to acting in theater and silent films. So she starred in the 1915 film called Inspiration, Hmm. which is kind of based loosely on her life, actually, as a sculptor's muse. So I guess you could say she was the inspiration. Uh Oh. And yeah, once again, so she broke society's barriers for women um, because in this film, she appeared fully nude on screen. Oh, yeah. What a horror. (laughs) (laughs) My stars. Well, it turns out. So there was obviously like like pornographic uh, movies, I think, going on. But this was the first like silver screen real movie where anyone had ever done that. So, um, yeah, that kind of was like the turning point for filmmaking um, and kind of made it more normal, I think. Yeah. And at this point, so Audrey um, was not only known as the world's first supermodel, but now she became the first prototype for the triple threat. She was a model, she could act, and she could dance. Wow. She really had it all. Yeah. Super impressive. Um, She basically created the prototype for all women in Hollywood, I feel like today, kind of like the standard yeah. entertainment idea. So Audrey's fame and uh, impact on the world has been most focused on her work shaping that industry for women. Um, she was called the proto-feminist many times because she just kind of like embraced her body and worked against society's norms for women at all times, which was really new at the time and is still something that everyone is working on, I feel like. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And just like other great women influencers, she used her fame to advocate for things that were really important to her and promoting uh, her thing was like promoting healthy lifestyles over wealth and beauty. So she was constantly praised of being like the most beautiful, you know, famous woman in the world. Right. But she, you know, said many times things like if you're not healthy, you can't really be deemed beautiful. And if you're if you are healthy, no matter what you look like you are more beautiful kind of yeah. that was a super rough quote <laughs> i just spit off the top of my head the message is there <laughs> that's why i am not a, a lifestyle influencer you know we're working on it <laughs> almost um so yeah now so far in this pretty long story um audrey has definitely been like a little deviant and absolutely scandalous but as the years go on and her work in the film industry eventually kind of dries up Audrey's life takes a really dark turn out of the limelight. So apparently at this point, Audrey got wrapped up in some pretty crazy issues. There were rumors that as World War I started breaking out, Audrey became kind of interested in the idea of eugenics, which is like a pretty scary topic on its own. Do you know what that is? I think so. So it's basically kind of like the basis of Hitler's... uh, 
platform okay, yeah. where, yeah, yeah. Like the idea of like the perfect race and trying to breed humans to have those like desirable attributes. Right. So a little deviant. De- yeah, not great. No. <laughs> no, definitely not good. Um, and she became, it got even worse because she became really paranoid that people were conspiring against her and she started spouting anti-Semitic messages. So she, yeah, Mm, not good. Really tied up in that whole mindset. And she was blaming her lack of work in recent years on the Jewish people. And she even contacted the house of us representatives, asking them to create a law protecting her from quote, the Hebrews, end quote. Protecting just her? Just her from this huh. huge conspiracy she came up in her head. So I think as you can tell, she, you know, is kind of dealing with a little bit of mental illness at this point. Right. She's, yeah, she's feeling like there's a lot of people conspiring against her. She's getting really paranoid. Um, obviously taking very drastic viewpoints yeah, on things. Yeah, that is alarming. Yeah. Uh, And that took a turn for the worst real quick. She was also indirectly involved in a murder-suicide by Dr. Wilkins. He was the man who owned the building that she and her mother lived in. And apparently this man was so in love with Audrey. He was obsessed with her and he actually killed his wife so that he would be available to marry Audrey. Oh, Oh, no. Yeah, and then once she denied being involved with him or having any romantic feelings, um, he was actually, he went to trial. He was sentenced to death in the electric chair, but he hung himself in his own cell before that could happen. Oh, God. So bad things were around her is what I'm hearing. Yeah, definitely. This horrible event attracted lots of press and attention and it pretty much kind of just ended Audrey's career in modeling and acting. Um, She was in the news a couple more times after this because she put up an ad for a husband looking for the perfect man. And I think someone like answered the ad and she was going to get married. But then after all this news came out and she started kind of spiraling, he ended the engagement Ugh. So that that was like the last of her big career. Um, and it said that Audrey felt like her life was actually cursed after she saw a gypsy fortune teller when she was five. And this is actually really creepy. The fortune teller told her that you shall be famous and beloved. But when you think that happiness is yours, it's dead sea fruit shall turn to ashes in your mouth. Oh, that's so that's terrible. a little spooky yeah and especially to tell that to a five-year-old and then have that five-year-old like remember it and internalize it that's right. just a lot like she's carried that with her her whole life yeah so it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy she kind of knew this would happen and then she started to spiral in may 1922 audrey's mental state deteriorated even further and she unfortunately tried to commit suicide by drinking poison um, oh. she was not successful, thankfully, but finally in 1931, at the age of 40, Audrey's mother, Kitty got a judge to admit her to the St. Lawrence state hospital, um, in a sane asylum in Ogdenburg. So here she was treated for depression and schizophrenia, which I think you can kind of see coming based on all her yeah. paranoia and stuff. Um, and she was there for 65 years until she died at 104 years old. 
Wow. Yeah, so she lived a really long time. That is a full life. Full life, but unfortunately, a majority of those years were spent in this hospital. Um, the first half of her life was completely different from the second half. Mm-hmm. So really sad. I originally wanted to dig in and do some research on sanitariums and mental hospitals from this era because I personally find this kind of old medicine really fascinating and creepy. Um, but after Audrey's life story had so many twists and turns, I kind of ran out of time. So you know, it happens. I'll have to save that for another bonus episode. I'm sure it'll come up again in another oh, yeah. scandalous story. Oh, yeah. But yeah, I wanted to just kind of end this story with the same quote that Allure ended their article written about Audrey. Um, they actually read it this January. It's pretty new. So I definitely would recommend checking it out. It was way more in depth and had more analysis. I just didn't really have time to dive into, but it was awesome. And the quote really encapsulates like the pain that I think she was enduring during this whole time. Like the world was gazed upon her beauty and praised her for nothing but her looks. And then her life kind of turned out to be nothing in the end. So in 1921, Audrey says to a reporter, what becomes of the artist's models? I'm wondering if many of my readers have not stood before a masterpiece of lovely sculpture or remarkable painting of a young girl, her very abandonment of draperies accentuating rather than diminishing her modesty and purity, and ask themselves the question, where is she now, this model who was so beautiful? Wow. Yeah, so that's it. <laughs> wow, it's kind of crazy because she like, I, I don't know if you t- said like exactly how old she was, but I think like with schizophrenia that usually like or frequently like will present around like someone's 20s. So like mm-hmm. she could have like been completely or for the most part all good. And then all of a sudden she starts like feeling it. I don't know. I know. I think I'm not going to do the real math here. That is a little bit too much work right now. <laughs> but based on the rough numbers I'm seeing of like different dates, it looks like. Thing. So she kind of rose to fame in her early 20s. She was discovered in um, like early, early 20s because okay. she moved there in her teenage years. And so I think it was only about 10 or so years that she was, it was about 10 to 20 years that she was pretty famous. Um, and it was the end of those last couple years. So I think she was in her 30s because okay. um, she wasn't until she was 40 that she actually went to the um, hospital. Right. Wow. Yeah, I know. So that's probably where she was getting those those crazy ideas of being mm-hmm. really paranoid and turning against so many people. Probably was just that manifestation kind of coming out in a later age. Um, but I just, I thought this story was so interesting because, like I said before, she was the prototype of the actress, the double threat, the model. Um, but she also, unfortunately, is the prototype of, like, stars, life's gone bad. Mm-hmm. It kind of just reminds me of... Like, I mean, this is a silly reference, but like Amanda Bynes, obviously she was super famous. Yeah. She was like a triple threat. She was an actor. I don't know if she was a singer, but like she, she was just in movies, TV. She was in so many things. Right. She was everywhere. Yeah. She was a superstar as a kid. And then obviously she also was diagnosed with schizophrenia and depression and like her life completely spiraled. But for so many other celebrities that, you know, sometimes it's drugs, sometimes it's just other mental illnesses. Sometimes, Sometimes it's just financial like pressure of everything. Yeah. So wow. I, and it, it was, I think one of the articles too was titled like the long lost first model that we've never heard of because even though she was the first and she was like 
the biggest for so long. Right. It She just kind of, you know, got eclipsed by everyone else who came after her and mm-hmm. had similar crazy stories. But yeah, I, think I just thought it was so interesting. I think it's kind of telling like about like the nature of the industry, I guess, you know, like it's mm-hmm. just, it's kind of crazy. And I feel like it's shocking to think that it was so like, intense even back then like you see it now all the time with like all these child stars just kind of like fizzling out because like it just becomes too much but yeah it's crazy even even like when she was describing looking at the statues and everything it made me think of like obviously some celebrities nowadays say like oh I don't let my photos be airbrushed because I want to keep it real or whatever Mm -hmm. but I mean, that was like the original airbrushing where they, she was the muse and the model, but obviously the sculpture people were like making what they wanted. They were changing it up and taking liberties. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then she felt the effects of that even then. Oh man. I can't even imagine. No, it sounds terrible. Sad story, but I can't believe I never heard of it. And I thought it was really cool juxtaposition of you know her scandalous first half of her life which was like very deviant and Mm -hmm. daring and then the second half of her life which was kind of also on the outskirts of society definitely not what we'd consider normal no (laughs) but yeah I just thought that was a really interesting one that is very interesting I feel like it's surprising that there's not more like media surrounding her I feel like that's something that would really get a lot of attention these days so I'm Mm -hmm. glad you shared it with me and all of our mm. listeners. <laughs> Hopefully people are listening. <laughs> Hopefully. Hello, everyone yeah. out there. You out there? <laughs> um, but actually, that's going to be something that I think I think about for a long time because, I don't know, it's just very interesting. Very like, it's something to kind of like mull over, you know? Yeah, I got really into the research and like, I, I did it all in like two hours but I read so many articles because everyone has a really good analysis too. I tried to put a lot of people's analysis into, you know, my notes and everything, but for sake of time, I couldn't put everything in there. So definitely check out, um, Vogue has a great one. Allure has a great one. And yeah, people are really insightful about the impact that she had. I love it. Gotta love some good research. (laughs) Anyways, speaking of research, what story do you have for me today? Okay. So I'm actually really excited about this. Not at all similar to yours. Um, But I feel like I'm going to talk about Kat a lot in these episodes because she keeps sending me really good ideas that I have to talk about. So the other day, Kat is my friend from last episode who I talked about. We stayed on the Queen Mary together. And the other day, she DM'd me on Instagram and all like she said was podcast question mark. So I had to check out this post she sent me and I was immediately intrigued. really good clickbait podcast question mark i know she really got me um so what she sent me was basically a screenshot of a tumblr post that was talking about how we as a society have probably lost a significant amount of medical knowledge during the witch hunts because midwives were often accused of witchcraft and persecuted and then ultimately medicine became a male dominant field so all of this medical info that is so pertinent and specific to women is no longer being passed down to other women and ultimately it just disappears forever so right so i had this whole plan i was going to talk about witches you know i'm moving to boston so i did some research on salem you know the salem witch trials And I was all jazzed about that because the more I thought about it, the less I realized I know about it. 
like we all know it happened but unless you lived in massachusetts during like third grade state history how much do you really know you know like i know a Mm -hmm. lot about california missions but not much about like the details of the salem witch trials speaking of I've been meaning to ask, I lived in Washington for four years, but I don't think I know. What was like the defining state history lesson in elementary school? For Washington? Yeah. Uh, Okay. In elementary school, all I can remember is um, we had to do like, I think it was in fourth grade. We had to do a report on Washington and we each got to pick a topic and I picked the space needle (laughs) and everyone was like fighting over that topic. And I was so proud that I got it. Um, because it was like built in the world fair and everything. Oh, so yeah. yeah. And I don't remember anyone else's topics. I'm sure it was something about like <laughs> lumber or apples or whatever, but I think that was probably the, yeah, the most Washington centric lesson that we had. I love that. I know it's, I always find it interesting cause I, there is that like weird period of our youths where we all had to learn something different because we all lived in different places. Don't know how they really get away with that, but it's cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> So what I, was, what I was going for, basically, is there's a lot of complex history behind all these witch hunts. Whether we're talking Salem or Europe, it's just another example of like the systemic persecution of a minority group. Um, and I found a lot of really great detailed accounts of how this happened and why this happened, in case you can't tell. But I became super intrigued by the second half of this Tumblr post. So it's a little bit of a tangent um, from the witch trials, but... This person named Jackalie Blebs on Tumblr really popped off, okay? So Mm -hmm. in response to this post about losing all this medical knowledge to the witch hunts, this person, I think it's a girl, she introduces the Voynich Manuscript, which is a dense, ancient book with incredible drawings and diagrams, but that literal experts, I'm talking CIA and World War II codebreakers, cannot decipher. So nobody has been able to read this book for 600 years. Oh my okay. gosh, wait, I think, I think I've seen pictures of this book. It's really, really cool. And I'll kind of explain what it looks like. Um, but I had never heard of it. So I was like, I have to know what this is. Um, so obviously I did some digging and let me do my best impression of the narrator from a YouTube documentary I watched. This text has defied all attempts to unveil its secret for centuries. The Voynich Manuscript. <laughs> So, a little history to actually clarify what this is, if you don't know. Um, In 1912, Wilfred Voynich, a Polish antiquarian and book dealer, acquired a bunch of old books from a monastery in Rome. Among those was the Voynich Manuscript. So, if you can picture it, it's just a bit larger than the standard paperback we know today, but it's 246 pages of fragile animal skin that was written and illustrated on, and the pages themselves have been carbon dated to the 15th century. But considering the pages may not have been used right away, it could have been written into the early 16th century as well. So, National Geographic points out that the manuscript doesn't include an index, but it most likely had foldouts with more information that have been lost to time. Also, the page numbers aren't consistent, and it's possible that it has been rebound at some point in history. So, the original page order may have looked completely different, but basically, the script, the handwriting, is a beautiful, yet illegible, because as I mentioned, it's in no known language, but it's approximately 25 to 30 characters that you can read from left to right in typical paragraph style on each page. And accompanying them are very detailed illustrations of nude bodies, planets, volcanoes, castles, 
plants and like astrology and astronomy symbols so right super interesting it's a fun little mix of things like you wouldn't expect all that in one book but i'm totally imagining i don't know if you ever had these but at costco in like the 2000s they used (laughs) to sell like this big book called wizardology and i've never heard of that oh my gosh it's so it's like this big like book for kids and it's made to look with like these old pages and like this old script and it has like spells and different like so many different things like little pop-ups and stuff oh my gosh it was the best book ever so i'm just completely imagining that costco book right now okay i think i would have loved that as a kid and now i'm kind of offended that i didn't have one but um, okay i still have my copy at my parents house you can come over and look at it. i'm coming over we'll have a little (laughs) moment (laughs) um but yeah so that sounds awesome please keep picturing that because i'm sure it's exactly the same Based solely on the drawings in this book, it has been generally concluded that you can split it into six sections, so herbal, astronomical, biological, cosmological, pharmaceutical, and recipes. (laughs) But it's not entirely clear the purpose. Is it magical, you know, I'm talking witchy, or was it a record of the scientific research at the time? There's also some theory circulating that it was literally just a prank, but I'll get into that a little later. So the manuscript has obviously been a big deal in the intelligence communities because the code or language it's written in is truly secret. Um, During World War II, codebreakers tried to decipher the manuscript to ultimately use it to develop new codes that couldn't be cracked, but they were never able to determine its meaning. Even the CIA and NSA tried and failed. So before I go into anything else, I want to make a disclaimer that there have been numerous recent attempts to decipher the code, and a number of people claim to have achieved it, but really it's all just speculation and a lot of conflicting opinions. Also, Mm. most of the, I know, most of the theories I found give ideas about the meaning of just certain parts of the book, so take this all with a grain of salt. So the first theory I'm going to talk about was published in 2019, and it's from an academic named Dr. Gerard Cheshire from the University of Bristol. He worked to match the figures and diagrams to letters and words located nearby on the pages. You know how like in a textbook, the description is usually right below the picture and the pages around the pictures usually correspond with the images. Right. So he assumes that the manuscript follows the same logic. The study further suggests that the manuscript was written by Dominican nuns to keep track of historical events and medical plans. And according to Cheshire, it's written in a mix of Latin, ancestral Italian, and Spanish. So most interesting is his interpretation of this giant figure, which he's calling a map of four islands in the Mediterranean Sea. So according to science, right around these islands, there was a series of volcanic eruptions uh, between the 4th and 16th centuries. So Cheshire is claiming that the maps he found depict a rescue mission in response to a volcanic eruption in the year 1440. If this is true, according to Forbes, this would be one of the earliest drawings of a volcano ever discovered in medieval literature. And the map also apparently shows rescue routes between the islands marked with compasses to assist navigation. So, you know, pretty high tech. That's actually really cool. Yeah, but another interpretation of the same drawing suggests that it's more related to astrology. So like what Cheshire was calling islands were instead attributed to celestial spheres and star constellations. So pick your poison, I guess. Um, There's a lot of room for interpretation here. 
Um, but then also, a 2017 theory claims that the manuscript was a hygiene guide for upper-class women, which is more congruent with the original Tumblr post, um, although not quite exact. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, like, the original scientific theory, but no, the original Tumblr post The original Tumblr it, post. So. <laughs> Tumblr is important, okay? <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, so the researchers here believe that the text is comprised of Latin abbreviations, but according to other experts, and apparently there are a lot of them out there, um, this is too far-fetched because it's too general. The researchers here looked at illustrations of bathing women and plants and just made an educated assumption based on the history of the time. But I guess the experts make sense in saying that this is kind of baseless because it wouldn't explain the variety of other illustrations like the possible map constellation chart we were just discussing. So, you know, that's another one. (laughs) (laughs) Also, people have gotten really high tech with this. So another group of researchers even employed uh, AI to try to figure this out. So these guys have this hunch that the manuscript was written in either a vowelless alphagram or an anagram where the letters are rewritten alphabetically. So like in a word, you would put like the A first and then like, you know, so on and Mm -hmm. so forth. Um, So they trained their computer to decode hundreds of different languages with a 97% success rate and then set it against the manuscript. And eventually what they came up with was that 80% of the words were probably Hebrew. So they asked a native Hebrew speaker to take a look, but because this is probably a medieval form of Hebrew, they had no luck. Um, so apparently their next resort was Google Translate. And after correcting the... F- <laughs> yeah, right? Oh my gosh, that's so funny. That's how I passed Spanish in high school. So it can work. <laughs> um, so after correcting the first sentence, according to Nat Geo, it read... She made recommendations to the priest, man of the house, and me, and people. So, you know, what does it mean? Don't know. But could it be what it says? Probably. I mean, who knows, Mm. really? Um, It sounds kind of like I'm imagining it's like a diary entry. Right. Or, yeah, or like uh, instructions based off of someone else's advice. Yeah, I get that. Um, I'm assuming the she is a witch. I I hope so. <laughs> I hope so too. Um, but they don't really go into like what they're interpreting this at. I think they were just super stoked because at least they have some sense of what this like code is. Um, but again, Google Translate is for modern day languages, so it's not going to be super accurate in translating the specific dialect. Also, there's another uh, 20% of the language that we still just have no clue as to what it is, which is a pretty big question mark. And this article was posted in 2018, and I can't seem to find an update on it, so I guess that's as good as it got, or maybe they're still doing research on it, but I don't know. This one was felt like the most definitive, though, because um, they actually had, like, a sentence, so mm-hmm. kind of interesting. I hope they're still researching it. I feel like, I I hope feel like so. as technology advances, you know, they'll be able to find, like, patterns or, I don't know, like, different parts of the language that they can piece together i sure hope so i just think it's interesting because like every piece of research that i like took a look at they all think it's like a different language so there's no like one working theory right now which is kind of interesting weird i wonder if they could like trace it back not based off of the language but based off of like i know okay so i when i went to ireland this summer i know i talk about a lot but they (laughs) have this like big book the book of Kells. it's mm. like this 
a part of like the ancient Bible writings. I don't really know cool. what it all was. I kind of <laughs> forgot. But um, they like did a bunch of testing and they know like based on the different sediment that was on the pages and the different compounds used in the ink, they're able to like trace it back to the exact time and location that it was written in. So I feel like that'd be really cool to just like narrow it down the exact area, time, like everything going on. And then maybe there'd be some kind of historical context. See, I would love to know that. They've done like some like carbon dating and stuff, but I mean, I didn't hear anything about like the ink. So clearly someone is not doing their job. (laughs) (laughs) So the next part is where I really kind of like geeked out because if you don't know I'm going to school to become a speech pathologist so I've studied a lot about language um I took a class that was literally called language science so this is super up my alley um but basically by analyzing this quote language we can compare it to modern and known ancient languages a researcher named Gordon (laughs) Rugg basically straight up says that this is not a language So he cites reasons, including the fact that the most common words in any language are typically the shortest, you know, like a and the, but the Voynich manuscript doesn't follow a pattern like that or any pattern that makes a lot of sense. So I mentioned before that Cheshire was functioning based on the assumption that words related to the diagrams would be in close proximity on the page. But Rugg suggests that that is super not the case in the Voynich manuscript, which pretty much discredits Cheshire's theory. Um, He's quoted saying that there's just a statistical tendency for some words to be more common on the plant pages than anywhere else. So sounds reasonable to me, but I'm not an expert here. (laughs) I've definitely heard that before, like when they were um, decoding, I think it was like the Zodiac Killer's letter. Mm -hmm. They were looking for those patterns in the words and like the most, I think those like the most common were like or letter would be E or something. I don't really remember, but like looking for those same patterns. Mm -hmm. So I believe it. Yeah, exactly. I feel like he's got some good info going here. He also notes some other things that make him believe that it's just not a language, including the fact that the distribution of syllables is usually the same throughout a text, um, but it's very skewed throughout the manuscript. So, you know, like there's phonemes that are like the smallest unit of sound that's still meaningful um and it's all about like which phonemes fit in which like slot of the syllable so typically a pattern is like consonant vowel consonant so the word napkin for example has two closed syllables you know it has n app which is consonant vowel consonant you get it (laughs) so that's a little small lesson for you there but apparently the voynich manuscript doesn't offer us any indication that a pattern like that is present Also, there isn't a single error in the entire book, so nothing is scribbled out or rewritten, and it's just, like, not plausible that whoever wrote it made absolutely no mistakes ever. So, food for thought there. Yeah, it's a little weird when you think about it. (laughs) So, is the theory kind of, like, maybe it was gibberish? Like, someone was just, like, making markings? So, it's interesting you ask that, because Rug kind of goes into that a little bit, um, So he believes that it's like a hoax or a prank, Um, and he goes into detail about a grid syllable system that it would make it possible for the writer to mimic real language, because based on like the patterns we can see, it's neither completely random or completely patterned. So basically, the writer of this, according to Rugg, 
would have made up syllables that he or she arranges in a grid and then uses a piece of paper with holes cut in it to move around the grid and combine the syllables that show through the holes to make these fake words. So nobody would ever be able to crack it because the nature of this grid system, which is complex and I'm not entirely sure how it works, which is why I'm not excelling at trying to verbalize it, (laughs) but it basically allows for nobody to be able to reverse engineer the writing to be sure of how the grid was laid out. And that's without taking into account human error and the writer mixing up syllables just for kicks. So basically, Rugg says that if you were just trying to like write out gibberish, it would actually be super taxing. So this like complex system actually makes it easier for the writer, but they still have to put a lot of work into creating this because, you know, a completely random selection would create no discernible pattern, but a language or code would display some semblance of a pattern. So this sort of random method that Rugg suggests could achieve a completely nonsense document that still has some language-like pattern that could trick historians for 600 years into thinking that it means something. So while we still don't know exactly what secrets the Voynich manuscript hold, we can speculate endlessly. You know, maybe it was written in a secret language. I know some of you listening had one growing up, just admit it. (laughs) Or LiveScience.com speculates that maybe it really was created by a super genius who made up a new language that follows no conventional rules. Um, Some suggest the book contains early discoveries and inventions by philosopher Roger Bacon, Or maybe it was just a smartass that wanted to see people puzzle over the mysterious document. Well, puzzle they have, and I have to say I'm hooked. It gives me, like, National Treasure vibes, but Nicolas Cage isn't here to solve it for us. Um, (laughs) So I guess I'll just settle for saying that this is a mystery that was truly lost to time. And I really hope in my lifetime someone finally figures it out. But people have been trying for over a century, so that doesn't really look too good (laughs) there. Um, but yeah, I find this super interesting and I know it was kind of all over the place and I will talk about a murder next week, perhaps. Um, (laughs) but I feel like more people need to know about this mystery. Yeah. I know I said in the beginning that I think maybe I've heard about it, but I actually hadn't, I was thinking about a different book. I've seen it kind of on the internet, like some book that people can't decipher, but I don't think it's the same one. This one definitely is like... Yeah, I've never heard of it. I've never heard of the combination of like astrological maps, medicine. Mm-hmm. That's so cool. I want to know so badly like what those insights were, assuming right? that they weren't fake. That's the thing. It's like I feel like, well, I believe and many of the researchers I read believe that there could be like some like information that like we just like have completely forgotten or like it's just not something that even crosses our mind today. So who knows what it holds really? <laughs> I think I'm like, my mind is kind of spiraling. I'm imagining now like a bunch of witches and like warlocks having Mm -hmm. this whole other language and like writing system or something that is completely different to obviously like what we now have today. And I Mm -hmm. feel like that's pretty possible. I know. It's kind of interesting because again, again, the original Tumblr post that posted this, um, the writer says like, all these researchers are men and they're like, it's written by a man, like blah, blah, blah. But she's like, maybe it was literally just written by women that like didn't want guys to figure it out. So like maybe women in this like town or area it was written in had like a secret code that only the women knew. That would be cool. You never know. (laughs) (laughs) So it's really interesting. I feel like there's a lot of like paths that it could go. So 
fingers crossed that someone figures it out. If you're really good at code breaking, please tell somebody. <laughs> yes. It's making me think of, what was that movie with Benedict Cumberbatch? Um, he played Alan Turing. Did we watch that movie? Uh, I don't think I have. Oh my gosh. It was so good. It was, um, oh, it was called Imitation Game. Oh, and, I totally yeah. know what you're talking about. Yeah, he was like the guy who invented the first digital computer. He cracked the code in World War II and basically ended the war. But if anyone could solve this book, I'm sure it would be him. Oh, man. Just need a little bit more Benedict Cumberbatch in our lives, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. We all do. Oh, yeah. Um, well, I guess we should call it for today. Thank you all for listening to our super special bonus episode. Yeah, thank you so much. Um I know it was not expected dropping an episode on a Tuesday or maybe Wednesday, depending on when. Hopefully Tuesday. Hopefully Tuesday. Um, But yeah, if you were, maybe you were waiting to listen because you wanted three or more episodes to binge at a time. I totally get that. Well, now you can. You're welcome. Um, And just a little reminder, we are available on a bunch of streaming platforms, um, Spotify, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, Anchor.fm. So please check us out. Tell your friends. Yeah. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram. And please feel free to email us anytime at DeviantLittleDarlings at gmail.com. Yeah. We can't wait to hear from you. (laughs) That's going out to Olivia's mom. (laughs) Yes. Mom, please (laughs) email me again. It was so fun. It was so cute. (laughs) It was really cute. All right. Well, with that being said, we'll see you on Friday. Yeah. Have a good rest of your two days. Woohoo. Peace out, everybody. <laughs> Bye.